This is Fresh Shed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Today, we celebrate the life and work of Paulo Freire, who was born on September 19, 1921, 100 years ago today. Freire has had an enormous impact on education around the world, from his concept of freedom and praxis to his understanding of oppression and liberation. I'm sure many listeners have read his famous book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Paolo explained so clearly that freedom was not something that you can grab and have for the rest of your life. Freedom is a praxis. Every action that you make can be free or not. You can't say, I'm a free person. I'm a person which always tries to act in freedom in every action of my life. With me today is Alma Flor Ada, who knew Freire and was deeply influenced by his work and friendship. Alma is a professor emerita at the University of San Francisco and author of children's books, poetry, and novels. Alma Florada, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. It's so wonderful to have you join us to celebrate Paulo Freire, his 100th birthday. So when did you first encounter Paulo Freire's work? I encountered his work when I was a university student in Lima, Peru, and it was through very humble ways. Students were smuggling mimeograph copies. I hope everyone listening to this have an idea of what my mimeograph is. And these printed copies of his classes from Chile. We were living in a very repressive times in Peru at the time. It was a supposedly elected president, but he really was just a continuation of the previous dictatorship. So uh, Freire's name was Taboo. Why was Freire's name Taboo in that time? Why did they have to be smuggled in? He was considered to be a revolutionary and uh, someone who would steer people into understanding their place in the world and their rights in the world. Then I was able, a couple of years later, I guess, to find a very small paperback, I think, um, pirated copy of the Pedagogy of the Oppressed in a bookstore in Lima. And um, and I read it, and I began trying to learn all I could about Freire. And when I was, and I, at the time I was studying, but I was also teaching, and I taught my students, everything I knew about Freire, high school kids. And they were very excited about it. And we, this was a very wonderful a German school, trilingual, German, Spanish, English, Alexander von Humboldt. And the school itself was very fancy, although many of the students that were there came from uh, working families. And the students were very moved with the idea of what Freire was doing. And in that area was a new development area in Lima, very elegant, but there was on the highway there, there was a a wall to the side that was really keeping from everyone's side a barriada. A barriada is one of these make-up barrios of people who would come from, indigenous people would come from the countryside and to the capital and then build their huts with whatever materials they possibly could and live there with no running water, no sewage, I mean, really very difficult conditions. And the students said, well, we can do something like Freire did with the peasants. 
And so we started going to this small community. The first thing that happened is, of course, they were coming ready to alphabetize. Well, these people didn't speak Spanish. There were only a couple of these students who spoke Quechua because their families have land in the mountains and they, from visiting there, had learned the language from the peasants. So alphabetizing didn't seem to be the easiest thing to do or the but furthermore, we learned the most important lesson. It wasn't about what we wanted to teach the people. It was what did they need? Well, these people have a very clear need. They were selling things on the street. They were selling fruit and vegetables that other people would bring to them and tell them to sell it for whatever price. And then once they sold them, they were supposed to pay back for the merchandise. Well, they didn't know. They didn't understand the money. They didn't really know how to make change. They So they were being ripped off all over because they would put their hand and the people would pay whatever they wanted to pay them or they would put their hand for the people to take the change. And some people were honest, but many were not. And so they knew they had the great necessity of learning how to handle money. So we began doing that with them. And then right after that, we tried to find out more things they needed. Well, the next thing they needed was food was not the best thing to sell because they didn't have any way to store it. They didn't have refrigerators or anything. So part of their merchandise would go bad if they didn't sell it on time. So they knew that their women knew how to sew. And if they could get materials on a sewing machine, they would be able to make clothes to sell. And that would be more permanent. So the students went back to their parents and they were able to get three donated used sewing machines which we would bring. But then the thing was, who would use them? How would they use them? Well, they were very community-oriented. So with the help of some of the parents that were willing to donate some of the materials and the men from there, they built a community area, just a big community hall, very simple, but, you know, open, but roof and, and floor. And the machines, the sewing machines were installed there. They were not electric. They were just, you know, pedal. And the women would take turns on using the machines. And meanwhile, they would, the others that were not sewing would guard everybody's children. So they sort of have a, a, in that big area, they had a place for the little babies and toddlers, the smaller children, and some of the mothers would take care of them while the others were sewing, and then they would take turns this way. And it was amazing how they could organize this with no discord, with no difficulty. But And for students, this was such a big learning experience to see how these people were capable. Then they came up with a request for us. <laughs> and the request was they wanted paint because they wanted to paint numbers in their houses. Their houses were made of straw mats, of cardboard, of, you know, um, old pieces of wood. They were very humble houses, but they wanted numbers because all the houses in the city, when they went out there to sell, had numbers. So we tried to make up a map of this. There were about 50 families there. A map of this crooked streets and where the houses were to try to make sense of the numbers we were going to put. But then, no, they didn't want the numbers in any order. They wanted to put the number they like. So everybody could choose their favorite number. <laughs> and you had an A next to a 15. <laughs> but this was such a learning for us of how you can just walk into a community and think you can help them out with your preconceived notions over things that for them numbers were magical and they wanted a good magical number that would be important for the house, not numbers in an order that meant something for other people. So it was 
Freire in action in a, in a very interesting way. And of course, these, some of them did want to learn many other things and they would outline whatever, I mean, express whatever they wanted to learn. And these students would create practical and visual ways to teach them whatever they wanted, like the areas of the city, the most important streets and the, the buses where they run and all kinds of different things. Was it ever dangerous to be teaching your students such sort of community activism? Because if the very books that Paulo Freire was writing were censored and had to be smuggled in, and here you are teaching students how to sort of enact a lot of these ideas and embrace Paulo Freire's teachings, was it ever dangerous in that context at that time? By the time, to be very sincere about this, a president had been elected, a new president, and so the situation from that respect was a little less complex. This doesn't mean that my ways were very esoteric, if you want, with regards to the curriculum and the other. One big benefit that I had to be able to do this is that the daughter of the principal of the school was my student, and he really appreciated what was going on. It actually saved me probably from being expelled from the school at another moment not related necessarily with Freire, but a most extraordinary writer of Peru, uh, Jose Maria Arguedas, who wrote novels about the life in the mountains, in these small towns. He knew the indigenous people very, very closely. And he wrote in Spanish, but in a way that reflected the syntax, the language, the imagery of the characters that he wrote about. Very sensitive man. And um, he committed suicide after a couple of days died and it was his burial. And my students have been studying his work with me. And I said, you know, they're burying him right now. And they say, why are we not there? And so I took off with my four students in my class, got on a public bus, didn't tell anybody where we were going, didn't ask for permission. We just, in all our emotion, went to that cemetery. It was extraordinary. It's something I will never forget because he'd been dying for two days. Many indigenous people came from all over Peru. And I don't know if you've seen it, cemeteries in Spanish-speaking countries, they tend to have monuments and rice tombs and things. And these people climbed on all of those. And from there, they were singing for him. And they were playing the Indian harp. They were really, it was so, so moving. And my students felt that it was they, the only place they were supposed to be at the time was that. And we returned back to school. And of course, all the other professors were in arm. This was so against the norms of a German school. But the principal did stood up for me. And he said he was happy that his daughter had had that opportunity. And all of these are the things that Paolo, in a way, had given us permission to do. What about your own scholarship, as well as all of the children's books? I mean, you have created countless children's books. How do you see Paulo Freire's sort of influence in your scholarship and in your children book creations? It's interesting, but there was a book published by Libraries Unlimited about my work, and it has a preface by two professors from Kent State University in Ohio, and they found the Paulo Freire presence in my books. And do you agree with them? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, Freire, I'll tell you something else, a personal 
presence of Freyrik. My daughter has always been my most important critic. And from the time that at three years old, she told me that she was writing books because mine were too ugly, high school books. And she was three years old. She's always been very critic. And when she was about 12, one day she said, I hear you talking about this Paulo Freyrik. And I'm very impressed. And I have even been reading a little of his pedagogy of the press. But what I don't see is Paulo Freyrik in the way we live in this family. You make all the decisions. It was deep. It was profound. She was the oldest of four. And from that day on, we dialogue. So my relationship with my children has been pretty much very much more on a very equal terms of respect and value of everyone's views. So you really embody and live a lot of his ideas. I mean, it makes sense since you've, you've studied him and you've taught him for so long. And my daughter was wonderful on that. And by the way, she names her work Diaproxis. Did you ever meet Paulo Freire? Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. Yes, of course I met him. What, when did you first meet him? I first met him in Sacramento at a, uh, the home of a professor. This was at the time that he still wasn't coming under the auspices of Carnoin or doing public things, but this was just uh, a small gathering that some people had put together. And I went with my daughter. It was a small circle in this living room. There weren't that many seats, and I sat on the floor next to him. And, uh, and it was, I didn't do it, you know, it's not like I purposely did that, but I did it. I mean, it was the right thing, right? And then after that, there was a break, and he wanted to know who I was. When I told him my name, we recognized that we had a very dear common friend, someone that had recently passed away and that had spoke to Paulo about me. So he knew about me before. This was the um, Augusto Salazar Bondidi. Uh, Peruvian philosopher who was a dear friend of mine and he had become a good friend of Paulo and for some reason he had talked to him about me. So Paulo immediately embraced me from that moment on. Oh, how nice. What was he like as a person, Paulo Freire? He was very simple, very human, very unassuming, very modest in reality, extraordinarily kind. He really embodied everything he ever wrote. He was a listener. And he knew how to listen, he also knew how to engage, and how to offer others the possibility of dialogue. You know, there are always those little anecdotes that somehow stay with one. And one of them happened in one of the times that I brought him to USF. By then, the university had, you know, opened to him, and the dean suggested that we would go to lunch. And Paolo, uh, the dean, and I went to lunch, just the three of us, and we took him to a Peruvian restaurant, a very good restaurant in, in uh, San Francisco, uh, thinking that he would enjoy the food. In this restaurant, they had this way of serving where they would bring the food like in a big platter, so loaded with food. And Paula looked at the food, and he was pensive, and kept very pensive, and then he became so sad, and he said, in my country, this would be food for a whole family. There is no way that I can eat this. I mean, you can think in retrospect there were things that could have been done, like, you know, asking for a place, serving some of that. That wasn't the issue. I mean, he got so deeply into this feeling physically, the inadequacy, the, the, 
inequity in the world, I mean, inequality. The, I mean, so the dean just stood there witnessing this experience. I did too. And after a little while, the three of us got up and left because this was such a solemn and powerful moment. But it was totally authentic. It was something that happened in that moment. And I can tell you that for years, I could not cross the dean on a hall that he wouldn't say, do you remember Paulo's face that day? That it humanized that team quite a bit. That seems like Paulo Ferry had that ability on a lot of people, humanize people, and then they themselves learned how to be human as well going forward. What would you say some of Paulo Ferry's biggest ideas are that have had the most impact? Because we're thinking about his legacy today. So, you know, when looking at his legacy, what ideas stick out the most in your mind? For me... Now, at this present moment, but always, one, and I'm putting this on my words, but he spoke about freedom, explaining what freedom really was. And see, I'm adding freedom is something that most people would want, would desire, and some people feel they deserve, and it's, you know, their inalienable right to have freedom to do what they do, uh, come what may, and we're seeing it all over at this moment in this country. But Paulo explained so clearly that freedom was not something that you can grab and have for the rest of your life. That freedom is a praxis. Every action that you make can be free or not. You can't say, I'm a free person. I'm a person which always tries to act in freedom in every action of my life. That would be the way I describe what I learned from him. So what is freedom then? Well, to really act freely, you need, first of all, to reflect on what has created the circumstances that you're trying to make a decision about. And then you have to reflect about what are the consequences, what are the different alternatives that there are. What are the different things that can happen now? And of those things that can happen, what would be the consequences of each of them? Not just for me, but for me and others. Now, there is a moment there where one needs to do some inner reflection about how are my own biases, how are my own desires, my own selfishness coming into play into the decision that I'm going to make. And at that point, knowing exactly what the consequences are, not only for you, but for the things you hold meaningful for justice, for equality, for attitudes that will lead to peace, then you can choose. And if you choose at that time, you truly are choosing with freedom. I'm not saying you might always choose right. You might even not have understood part of the process, but you have to go through that process in order to say, I'm acting freely. I'm not acting through imitation. I'm not acting through following a crowd. I'm not acting by prejudice. I'm not acting by Precious, I'm acting because as a human being, I have the potential to go through this reflective process and then act. To me, that was very valuable. And also very valuable is this idea of praxis as you act and then you reflect on your action. And then that leads to new action. So it's not like, oh, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I did the wrong thing. It's what am I learning from this thing that I have done and how I'm going to modify my next action in order that it would move in a different direction. I mean, that sense to me, praxis is such a powerful word because we tend to, I act and, oh, I did it right or I did it wrong. No, I'm acting in order to 
now reflect about how am I acting and now. And that's the process of evolution, of thinking and personality and attitude that I so much value having received from Paolo. And it seems like there's a, a real connection between praxis and freedom. Because you have to, it's an, as you were saying, freedom is this ongoing process. And there's an in interior sort of dialogue that has to go on with yourself when choosing how to act in this world. And then reflecting and seeing how your actions might have impacted the world. And moving, you know, making new actions in the forward, in the future that hopefully go towards freedom or embody some notion of freedom. So I want to sort of historicize Paulo Freire. So where did his idea, in a sense, of freedom and praxis even come from? In other words, what context was Paulo Freire developing these ideas in Brazil when he did? What was happening around him? Well, what was happening around him is the a tremendous distance that exists in most of Latin America between those that have the power and those that are completely oppressed. And and he was seeing that and living that and wanting to change that. And he felt that, that the oppressed had to liberate themselves, that the oppressor was not going to come and say, hey, now I realize that I have been unjust to you, and here we're going to bring some justice about. That was never going to happen. You know, it's interesting when you ask about his impact, I didn't talk about the issue of oppression and liberation, and, and that is also one of the most important things learned from Paolo. Learn that oppression oppresses both those who are oppressed and those who oppress them, because it dehumanizes the oppressor. And so the act of liberation is of great generosity for everyone. And that's what the opponents of Paulo Freire or the opponents of any liberating attitude or, you know, would say, oh, you are imposing on me, you are attacking me, you're trying to take my privileges without understanding. We are trying to humanize you. We're trying to let you be free of the internal oppression that you have without knowing it. You might not be oppressed in actions, in, in your livelihood, in your economics, but you are oppressed by having become an oppressor. And um, I think that was probably the one thing that made Freire become a global important figure because it goes beyond the education field. It goes to all of life and it's something real in the whole world. I mean, there is no, I don't believe any area of the world where there are not some people that are oppressed. There might be a few small places where that is less painful, but for most of the world, uh, there is a tremendous division between those who have and those who are not allowed to have. That having is not only economic, it's having really freedom of choice, is really having freedom of recognition of who they are. Is you know, it, it goes in so many aspects of life. We're celebrating his hundredth birthday today, and his ideas obviously have had a huge impact over the last half century and more. Do you see him having a continuing to have an impact going forward in the next hundred years, for instance? Well, I wish it wasn't as needed as it is. I am convinced that it will continue to be needed for still some time and that his voice will still be there, guiding many people. I don't see him being silent. Alma Florada, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure to talk today. I'm absolutely delighted. 
Alma Florada is Professor Emerita at the University of San Francisco. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Fanti Octas, Ng Jung Cho, Oba Femi Ungunle, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afroboteng, Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, the Shock Dev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.